This is WMPG. I'm Dr. Anne, and this is Safe Space Radio, a show about courage. The courage to talk about the subjects that are the hardest to bring up, but that we often think about the most. This month's series is on the experience of incarceration. I'll be speaking today with Dick Snyder about his work with Restorative Justice, a program that works to bring healing between the victim, the perpetrator, and the community. Dr. T. Richard Snyder is chair of the board of the Restorative Justice Institute of Maine and the founder of the Restorative Justice Project of the Midcoast. Dick is Professor Emeritus and former academic dean at New York Theological Seminary. His most recent book is The Protestant Ethic and the Spirit of Punishment. Welcome to Safe Space Radio, Dick. Thank you, Anne. Glad to be with you. So I want to start out kind of where you started out, which was teaching in a prison. Um, it's not, I think, most people's idea of a seminary professor's I, you know, teaching uh, location. What was it that inspired you to do that? Well, I taught many other courses as well at the, at the regular seminary, but we offered a master's program there, and uh, uh, I was part of the administration of the seminary at that point and therefore had the ability to uh, insert myself where I chose in terms of teaching. So uh, I decided to teach a course. Uh, the first course I taught on ethics at uh, Sing Sing Prison, I had uh, some rather notorious persons in the class, including the convicted killer of Malcolm X. And uh, when I first went in, I was deeply frightened. Uh, I had heard stories about Sing Sing. I had heard stories about uh, many of these men. And I did not know any criminals. At least I was not aware that I knew anybody who had been incarcerated face to face. Uh, so when I went in, I went in with some great trepidation. Um, that trepidation was not eased by some of the responses of the men to some of the coursework that I gave. And uh, I remember one time when one of the students came to me and I'd given him a C on a paper and he got within a few inches of my face and said, I am not a C. And I remember saying, no, uh, you're not a C, but your paper is and here's what you need to do to improve it. You're an A, but the paper's a C. And uh, we went on from there and developed a pretty good relationship. Uh, I came to realize uh, at Sing Sing as I taught these men over the years how significantly they had been uh, curtailed from developing the po potential within them. And I found many of them to be remarkable human beings with real insight, some of them brilliantly intellectual. And many of them, I felt, had been substantially rehabilitated, uh, not because the prison was offering them any particular programs that helped, but just because they had faced themselves and, uh, and, and come to some new understandings. Certainly our master's program helped them. Uh, there have been statistics done on the impact of education in the prisons, and uh, uh, the figures run from zero recidivism to uh, uh, very low recidivism rates for people who go on. Highly motivated folks, usually they're, they're a self-chosen lot, if and, you will. And, of course, the comparison is actually that without education in the prison, the recidivism rate depends on the crime. But I understand that sort of a 30 percent Oh, much is, higher. Is, oh, okay. 65 percent recidivism rate on the average within a three-year period for people coming out of prison. 
And 95% of the people who are in prison today are going to come out. So we have to get ready for that. And we have to do something different uh, for folks who've been incarcerated, who are coming back into the community, uh, either ill-prepared or prepared well for becoming productive citizens. So, and I understand that restorative justice is very focused on how to do that and how to really work not only with with the person who has committed the crime, but also the victims and the community as a whole. But I, before we even get to what restorative justice is, I, I want to hold on because I know that you went and did research in South Africa looking at the Truth and Reconciliation Commission there. And I wondered if you could sort of take us with you in, in how you got to restorative justice. Well, I, I did not start out with an interest in restorative justice. It was my experience at Sing Sing Prison that led me to realize that something different had to be done and uh, that we were wasting lives, wasting enormous amounts of money. The costs are enormous. And so I, I didn't start out understanding anything about restorative justice, but as I prepared to go over to South Africa, and this was back in 98, uh, I started reading about some of the philosophical underpinnings of their Truth and Reconciliation Commission. Uh, and they were... Uh, based on African philosophy, if you will, or spirituality of something they called Ubuntu, which meant the, the, that we are only a person by virtue of our relationship with each other. Uh, we are not isolated individuals. And it was that philosophy that, uh, that under, undergirded the Truth and Reconciliation Commission process that was led by uh, Desmond Tutu, Maybe we should just explain what the truth and reconciliation process is, and I'll take a first stab at it, although I know I know less about it than you. But my understanding is that it's a process in which uh, people who had um, committed racially or politically motivated crimes, if they were willing to tell the story of what they had done, ideally with remorse, in a, re- in a room in which their victims or the victims' families were present. Correct. And that there could ideally be a true apology, um, that this would help both the perpetrator of the crime in some ways make peace with their own soul, as it were, and the victims both learn what had really happened to their loved one, but also humanize the whole thing. Mm-hmm. And that other members of the community who'd been affected were also welcome to be in the room. Yes. Is that right? Yes, that's correct. And I wondered how some of these victims could possibly find forgiveness in their heart when some of the actions, you know, were were horrendous. Uh, I I visited with some called the Mothers of Guguleto. There were five mothers in Guguleto, which is a township outside of Cape Town. And I spent an afternoon in their uh, one of their homes sitting around the table drinking tea and talking. They had had, among them, I forget the number now, but five or six of their children had been killed. And they were now raising their grandchildren. And these were brutal, brutal actions that had occurred. And I sat there astounded. And I said, I, I, I don't understand. How can you find it in your heart to forgive? And they said, we have to for the sake of our grandchildren. If we don't, this cycle of violence and vengeance will go on and on. 
We are bitter as can be, but we must find a way to forgive. So, well, there's one thing from knowing that you need to forgive, which they clear, had clarity yeah. about. Knowing you need to and that it will help everyone is different from actually doing it. You yes, know, from it is. feeling the freedom in your heart that that sure. brings. And I mean, maybe for some people, maybe it's as simple as truly making a decision. Well, I think choice is always involved in the, in the act of forgiveness. And there, I mean, there is cheap forgiveness too. And, and one needs to avoid that at all costs, I think. Here in this case, I believe that they looked very seriously from what they described. They looked very seriously at what it would mean for them to hold on uh, in a non-forgiving way for the future of their country and their grandchildren. and It was really life and death. I mean, it sounds like they understood that they the, understood. Stakes, the stakes could not have been higher. Yes, exactly. Yes. Yeah. Okay, well, let's fast forward then um, and mm-hmm. talk about restorative justice. What is restorative justice? Well, restorative justice uh, focuses not on the law that's been broken, but the harm that's been done to persons, to the breaking of relationships rather than the breaking of laws. When we break a law in this society, the state is the one who is considered to be harmed. So it's the state of Maine versus so-and-so in a court case. But we realize in restorative justice that the most important harm is done to the victim and to those others who are harmed, that circle of harm, if you will, of, of family and friends, acquaintances, the, the neighborhood, all kinds of levels of harm beyond just the direct harm that goes to the victim herself or himself. Um, so the focus is on the harm that breaks relationships and how do we rebuild those relationships. Uh, restorative justice brings together the perpetrator, victim, and community representatives in ways that... Uh, in which the, as you said in your in your uh, introduction, uh, the perpetrators offer the opportunity to uh, acknowledge what he or she has done, uh, what was going on with them at the time, and uh, the victim is able to talk about the impact on their life, and others are able to talk about the impact on their lives in the process. And in that mix of conversation, we seek to find ways in which uh, an appropriate resolution can be uh, arrived at that would bring as much healing as is possible to all of the folks involved, including the offender who needs to be healed as well as the, uh, the obvious victims in the situation. And when you say that, you know, we try to find a solution, do you mean concretely like the offender will pay X very amount concrete. of dollars. It's very concrete. Very concrete. We we s- seek for uh, first uh, an acceptance of responsibility. Uh, then we seek for restitution, uh, appropriate restitution uh, for the whatever the the, the wrongdoing was. Uh, we look for rehabilitative steps, very specific rehabilitative steps that a person could take, and. Uh, and and that is written up as an agreement. Do people get worked with? I mean, for instance, I can imagine if I was a victim that I would be probably very anxious, especially if it was a violent crime. I'd be very anxious to be in the same room again with this person. Yes. Is there some process where both parties are worked with individually so that they're really ready for this encounter? 
Uh, I should tell you that the presence of a victim in, in this kind of an encounter is always voluntary. We found that about 85 to 90 percent of the victims are willing to be present, and when they're not, we have a surrogate victim present. Um, we do meet with each of the uh, persons involved uh, individually beforehand and do as much as we can to prepare. Well, in particular, what I was thinking was I would want some assurance that the offender who was coming to meet with me was going to take responsibility from the beginning and, the, and was going to be in, at some level remorseful. Yeah, we can't guarantee remorse, of course, uh, but we attempt. Uh, no, no coming together like this occurs without the offender being willing to acknowledge that he or she has committed the offense. And they are willing to go through this process. By the end, is the, is the person usually remorseful? Most of the time, yes. I mean, I can tell you a story about a, tell me a, story. a, a young lad, quite young, who he and another kid were going home from school one day. They passed a construction site, saw some things that intrigued them, and went home and got some butcher knives and came back and cut the pneumatic lines at the um, going into the trailer in a power uh, some power equipment. They were caught. Police caught them, and and the juvenile justice uh, officer referred them to restorative justice. So we brought together the the contractor, and the kid, and the kid's family, and some friends. And the kid, when he started out, he acknowledged he had done it, but he had his head down. He couldn't look anybody in the eye. He mumbled. He didn't express remorse. He just said he'd done it, and he, why did you do it? I don't know. I was bored. And uh, the, the damage that was done was somewhere in the neighborhood of $700, and uh, the parents very quickly jumped in and said, uh, you know, our boy's done a terrible thing, and we're, we're ashamed for him, and uh, we want to make the payment to take care of this. And the contractor said, uh, no. He said, uh, I've already taken care of the cost. He said, I don't want your money. And they said, well, what do you want? And he said, I want your son to learn what it takes to earn $700. I want him to come and work for me. Now, the boy was too young to actually be paid, but he was given a hard hat, and he worked some weekends and after school, and he... Uh, was also, uh, because he was such a loner, we dis determined that an appropriate uh, rehabilitative step for him would also be to join something like a, a sports team, an arts club, a choir, something that got him into a mix with other people uh, so that he wasn't left just to his own wiles all the time and thinking of himself as just an indivi isolated individual. But when this boy, after having done this work, when we came back together in the circle, this boy who had mumbled and couldn't look anybody in the eye sat up straight and spoke clearly and said, I am sorry for what I did, and uh, I've learned a lot through this process. And the contractor said, you've been such a fine worker that when you get to the age that you're looking for a job, please come see me. It was a wonderful uh, circle of healing, if you will. 
I mean, part of what seems remarkable about that story is that the contractor wanted more contact with the boy, not less. Yes, right. And that the contractor was willing. You know, he was invested in this kid's growth. He wanted the kid to learn something. Is that a big part of restorative justice, the hope that the offender will learn something? And, and does that work with adults in the same way as it would with kids? Sure. It absolutely is part of the whole process. Uh, to take responsibility is the first step in learning something, if you will, about yourself and your behavior. To learn about the impact on others is another step in the learning process. And then to learn what it is you need to do to avoid repeating that kind of behavior in the future. How do you become a different person? How do your attitudes change? How do your behaviors change so that you actually uh, take a new direction with your life? That's the, that's the source of, uh, of our hope here. And it is very, very common that that occurs. And I don't think there's any age where that can't be the case. Now, you had asked about restorative justice, and, and one of the things that, in addition to focusing on harm and the rebuilding of relationships, uh, as implied, I guess, by what I've been saying, um, restorative justice offers a different kind of culture. In this society, we have a culture that focuses on punishing people, uh, making them pay. And restorative justice is seeking something quite different. So for me, uh, personally at least, I don't care for the word punishment. I, I tend to move more toward the word discipline, which I think conveys a whole different thing. Punishment involves repelling, pushing away. It creates a wall. A wall Lock, with razor wire on a it. A wall with razor wire on it and bars and all the rest. But discipline invites. Discipline, which comes from the same word as the word disciple, offers a choice to a person. Come follow. Here's a path. Are you willing to engage in it? And it calls then for enormous accountability. But it involves a choice, and it's not something in which the barrier is put up. Uh, it's, it's an invitation to walk with rather than to push away from. I remember reading a book on depression um, by a Zen teacher, Sherry Huber, in which she says that there's a fantasy in our culture that punishment will make you good. Mm. And she really kind of breaks that whole idea down, and she suggests that punishment, in fact, has very little redemptive value in it um, and tends to make people more and more ashamed, but not good. Oh, I think there's strong evidence for that by the high recidivism rate that we have in our uh, prisons, uh, people coming out, going back in, two-thirds of them going back in within three years. I mean, prisons have often been referred to as colleges for crime. I want to ask about punishment even more broadly, kind of punishment in the culture and, and even in our own psychology. I know it's something you've thought and written about a great deal. In preparing for this interview, I started thinking about what do I know about punitiveness in myself and in my patients? What, am I, what do I experience clinically? And this is what I see, and I want to ask you what you think about it. In my experience working with many survivors of often assault of some kind, often sexual yeah. assault as children or, or as adults, what I have found is that when people have a, a wish to punish, it's often coming from a place of feeling as if they have been damaged. 
that this abuse has turned me into damaged goods. Like there's really no redemption possible. I'm now kind of contaminated and there's no way to undo it. And in my experience, psychologically speaking, as long as someone feels that, there is usually a wish to punish. Mm -hmm. But that through the course of therapy or healing, if someone gets to the place of feeling like, well, I was terribly wounded. I suffered a great deal during the incident and for years after. But I'm not actually damaged. In my experience clinically, the, the punitive wishes fall away at that point. And I'm curious to ask you if you see something similar in restorative justice. Well, it's a a fascinating perspective that you have. And I think think I've witnessed an awful lot of victims who have moved beyond the desire for punishment, which they started with, as they worked through this process. The fact of the matter is, uh, and I'm picking up on part of what you said, One of the things that we do to ourselves in this society is we label ourselves or allow ourselves to be labeled. Uh, I try not to refer to somebody as a murderer, but someone who has murdered. And if we label a person victim or they label themselves victim, then uh, there's very little escape from that kind of self-identity, I think, for as long as one stays with that self-identification. Uh, so even the use of the word victim is is uh, perhaps problematic in many cases. I think we've tried to help people understand that they're not defined by their worst action, murderer. They're not that. You committed a crime. You committed a murder. Inexcusable, dreadful, but that's not the sum total of who you are, and nor are you the sum total of the action done to you as a quote victim. It's like your it's like your first uh, person you worked with saying, "I'm not a C," right? And you were saying, "No, no, your paper is worth a yeah. C. <laughs> You're an A. You're an A. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. So one other thing I want to say to you, based on my clinical experience, is that when I work with survivors, so often there is the deep wish to feel like someone has learned something. Like that is part of their hunger and healing, hmm. is to know that someone will not do it again. Mm-hmm. It's like feeling like if I can make a contribution, if something good can come of this horrible suffering mm-hmm. that I've endured, that this person will learn something and never do it again, there is some small piece of redemption yes. for the sufferer. So the idea that there's learning there, I'm sure it's very satisfying. It is, and we've... Uh, I remember one woman who had been harmed who, at the end of the work together, said, this was the best thing that has happened to me in years. Not the harm, but the healing that came out of all of this. The best thing that has happened to me in years. I want to understand a little bit more of the concrete nuts and bolts. So if I, just say I as a mother had a son in prison in Maine, when does restorative justice come into play? I mean, and how, how can someone get involved? Do people request it? Does it happen after they're already in prison? Can you, can you try to invoke the process while someone's still, sent, you know, before sentencing? How does it actually work? Uh, it works in a, a variety of ways, and I don't know how concise I can be on this. But, I mean, it begins, we do a lot of work with young children in schools, uh, t- 
teaching them alternative ways of handling their uh, altercations, doing mediation work uh, with kids, uh, one-on-one mediation or training faculty how to do that or bring them into these circles and so forth. So there is a preventative dimension. Uh, The work that I, the description I described uh, to you about that young boy with the contractor and the vandalism that went on, that was an intervention before anything happened that would lead the boy into incarceration. We also have that case situation with uh, adults where the the DA or the court will say, we're going to defer the disposition of this case. We're going to give them to restorative justice and see if in a period of time something can be worked out where this person shows rehabilitative steps, uh, restitution is made, and so forth and so on. And if that's the case, they will not have to go to jail. Uh, it, in terms of uh, jail or prison, uh, uh, that's a real mixed bag. There's very little done inside the jails or prisons uh, in terms of restorative justice. We're trying to change that somewhat. Uh, we think that's critical. But where it does happen is through reentry programs with mentors being provided, uh, following people as they get released. Uh, and I understand that you provide often a one-on-one mentor for people to help them get yes. situated with maybe housing or setting up jobs. Like there's really a concrete. Yes. Um, it's interesting because last week's interview was with um, someone who is currently serving time at the Maine State Prison in Warren. And when I asked him what would be the, his one request for something that would really make a difference, he asked for more victim offender mediation. Mm-hmm. So wh- what is the block to bringing it more into the prisons? There has been a... Uh, a tendency, I think, on the part of uh, uh, corrections to focus primarily on the locking up and the punitive kind of response. I believe that's changing. Uh, people in the correction system, law enforcement, the courts, and so forth, are recognizing the, the dead end that we're at and the enormous cost that this is incurring and the the, uh, the, the revolving door that's going on. So, I believe that uh, there's a real openness now. I've talked with Commissioner Pont about this, and he understands, I think, the need for more and more programming. However, it's very important to know that victims cannot be approached by an offender who's in prison, uh, and nor can they be asked, would you like to meet? That has to be totally their initiative. So the only way victim offender or one way victim offender mediation could go on would be through surrogate victims where a person is dealing with a similar kind of harm that's been done but uh, would not be the immediate victim. Why is that? Uh, for the protection of the victim. Uh, if, if a victim is, af- is afraid to uh, confront again the, the person who harmed them, uh, there's there's no way that the correction system will allow them to be even approached uh, for the possibility. Legally, they, they're Legally, not allowed to do it? No, they cannot do it. Oh, right? I see. Yeah. And what if someone in prison was to write to you and say, would you no. write to my victim because no. I want to try to heal this? We cannot do that. We can't, we cannot, we have, we're bound by that same restriction in the law. If a victim takes the initiative they can move in that direction. I'm guessing your door isn't getting beaten down yet. Not yet. Those requests. No, no, not yet. (laughs) And we're just in the early stages of this restorative justice movement in the state. We think it needs to be expanded tremendously 
We hope to have a statewide impact. We believe that this can become a restorative justice state because this is a state that's manageable in size. We've got a number of people both inside the system and outside who care deeply about this. We see the dead end. We know that something has to be done, but it's even broader than just the criminal justice system. It really involves the whole arena of life. In fact, even in terms of some of the organizations that are, you know, businesses and the way in which power over is dealt with uh, and power, uh, the people who have to respond to that. There is a whole cultural shift here that needs to go on in this state. And the Restorative Justice Institute is about bringing about that change, that transformation. And if someone wants to learn more about this, what is your website address? How can they find out more? Uh, RJIMaine.org is the website for the Restorative Justice Institute. Okay, that's RJIMaine.org. Dick Snyder, thank you so much for being my guest. You're welcome. Delightful to be with you, Anne. I've been talking to Dick Snyder, who is the chair of the Restorative Justice Institute of Maine, about his experiences working with and teaching prisoners that led him to restorative justice, an approach that emphasizes healing and not just punishment for criminals, their victims, and the community as a whole. If you only got to hear part of this interview and you'd like to hear the rest, or if you have a friend who you're just dying to send this to, please go to our website, at safespaceradio.com. You can subscribe there to get a weekly link to that week's show. You can also download us from iTunes to listen to on your morning commute. You can like us on Facebook. Thanks to Gabe Graben for producing the show, Maurice Lennon for the music, and Jim Russell for being our consultant. Coming up next is Speak Freely.